the University of Tennessee Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy, and the Knox County Public Library are partners in a community study of the book Justice as Fairness, a Restatement by John Rawls. The following recording is part three in a five-part series. In this episode, Iris Goodwin of the UT College of Law talks about the argument from the original position. I'm Amy Gibson, and I work here at the Baker Center. You may have been seeing me roam around with the microphones uh, in past uh, past evenings. Carl sends his regrets. He um, went home sick this evening. But nonetheless, we have a wonderful program, our third installment. We have Dr. Iris Goodwin with us this evening, and we're thrilled to have her. She has a lot of experience and knowledge in political theory. She came to the UT Law faculty in 2005, if I read that correctly, and before that she received a a doctorate in political science from Columbia University. So she comes to us with lots of knowledge of Rawls, and we're very thrilled to have her and thank her so much for being here. And with that, I will turn it over to you, and off we go for part three. Well, thank you, Amy, for that introduction. It is a pleasure to be here, an honor to speak, especially at the Baker Center. Tonight, we're going to drill down further in our study of justice as fairness, and in particular, look at the original position, which is a way of thinking about social and political questions that lies at the core of Rawls' work. Now, Rawls started writing and circulating his work in the 1950s. And over the course of the time, there was a, he was engaged in, a, in a, a substantial dialogue with other moral philosophers about his work and about his ideas. And uh, there were many criticisms offered, many of them he addressed. But two of the most central, I want to begin by thinking about, the first was... That, and, it could, and these criticisms I still hear. First off, that his work, his, his theory doesn't readily yield outcomes or lend themselves to policy conclusions. What kind of health care system should the U.S. have? Should there be a draft? What about affirmative action? And there, the response to, to, to that criticism, I think, if we, look, if we examine Rawls's work, with respect to that criticism, would be that that's correct. He's not trying to do that work. He's not a policy wonk. And there's also a second criticism, and that is that he advocates, what he advocates is essentially the commonplace or central values of constitutional democracy. And the answer to that is that that is but it can't, if you understand the goal he has set for himself, if you understand what he's undertaken, it's not a criticism at all. If you have to put his theory in context, because while in the second half of the 20th century, I mean, even now, while we live in a constitutional democracy, or in some facsimile of one. I mean, there are many ways in which our constitutional democracy is unrealized. Even though we live in this, we, before Rawls, had lost the deep justification for this type of government. And we we had no metric by which to measure our progress. 
Now, the original position in his work, in his theory, does a lot of work for him in reconstituting and reconceiving the, that foundation. Now, when I, mean, when I talk about constitutional democracy, I mean liberal democracy. And this is not simply a matter of majority rule. If you settle for majority rule, then minorities, and I mean by that any people who are not part of, of a given legislative majority, live at the whim of the majority with respect to that particular issue. In a liberal democracy, the majority is always constrained by a regard for the individual and, and protections for legislative minorities. In the US, we capture those ideas in the Bill of Rights. There are various ways, various strategies by which you can, we, any constitutional democracy can address those. That is our way. Now, starting about the 17th century, the justification for constraints on democracy these, the, was stripped away. The old constraints were largely born of the natural law doctrine and the idea that certain values were born in human beings. We just knew certain transcendent things by virtue of being human. Modern science and the secularization, the attendant secularization of moral philosophy basically did those ideas in. We need only remember Bentham's comment about natural law as being nonsense on stilts. And that, that really left us in quite a predicament. By the 1950s, you really only had two theories of the state, coherent theories still standing. You had Marxism, where liberty was considered bourgeois and not a value at all. Or, or if it was a value, it was something that would only be achieved when you had you know, got to the utopia. Um, utilitarianism was also intact at where the, the guiding principle was the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And that, too, would then provide little quarter to minorities. Your happiness, if your happiness was not part of the majority, you could perhaps even be sacrificed for the well-being of the majority. Now, if you, when we, we think about those theories where, where we had got to by then, if you think of the Nuremberg trials, when the, the war criminals said they had been following the laws of Germany when they were doing the things they were doing, and what response did, did the court have to them? And they finally basically went back to a natural law doctrine and said, there are these ideas, okay? You're a human being, you know, we can argue about what they are, but in your case, we really don't have to argue because you're so egregious, we don't have to even have some kind of fine point, you know, discussion of the fine points. But there was a retreat into that because there was really no good answer. And after that, I mean, certainly Western moral philosophy has not been indifferent to the problem of justifying liberal democracy, but there was very very little significant success, even after Nuremberg. You, had, you still had utilitarianism, where you were and utilitarianism struggled to find a place for liberty. You had analytic moral philosophy, what do we mean when we say, ordinary language philosophy, intuitionism, I mean, we could go through the list. But none of these could deal with the central dilemma of liberal democracy, which is reconciling the core values of liberty and equality. So the, the goal that Rawls set for himself was to develop a moral epistemology for liberal democracy, that is, how do we know, how do we justify our core values? And how do we then think about core issues? And the original position 
was the device that let him offer that missing justification. And, you know, if he can do that, that's enough. Okay? That's enough. I mean, he, and that's basically what he said in his own defense. You know, folks, <laughs> this has been wanting for, for the last few centuries. If I can do this, you know, give me a break. <laughs> so the original position is, is a central device that lets him offer that missing justification, that, that modern justification. Now, what is it? At base, it's a thought experiment for self-clarification and public clarification. It's a fair and impartial point of view to be adopted in our reasoning about fundamental principles of justice, and from out of which we can extract principles and have them justified without resorting to metaphysical ideas, without going outside to ideas which now are generally taken, unless you get it, unless you go over to school of theology, are generally taken to kind of be, be not the sort of things that moral philosophy wants to rely upon. All right, so it's that, but it's also a lot more. Now, note that it is loosely analogous to the social contract theory of the 17th and 18th centuries. There's a certain resonance with that. But social contract theory was different in a significant way. Social contract theory was really a kind of philosophic history in which the, the person, the philosopher, posited some kind of primordial time. And by positing this primordial experience in a transitional contract, the philosopher was able to figure out what the individual owed to the state and what that individual did not. And often the did not was really important. All right, this is different. It's a thought experiment. It's not about the past. What we contemplate is a coming together behind a veil of ignorance. So that as we reason about fundamental principles, we're deprived of the knowledge about our own personal characteristics, for one. We're going to think about this, but we come and we, we bring our faculties, but we don't know our race, we don't know our gender, we don't know our talents, can I sing, will I be smart? I'll be a scientist. I don't, none of that. We don't know. I mean, we assume we don't know sexual orientation, religion, marital status. What are our, we don't know what our, fun, even what our fundamental values are. We also don't even know what kind of society we're going to be looking, going into, or what historical period that we're thinking about. But we do know certain uncontroversial knowledge about the way the world works. Things about economics and psychology, biology, the general tendencies of human behavior and psychological development. If some of you remember Rousseau in the Discourse on Inequality, he's also doing this philosophic history, but what he shows people doing is they come together around one set of problems to solve one, for instance, they, to solve one problem, they institute property. Only people start stealing. All right, so then they, need the, then they need the state, they need the tyrannical state. So one thing leads to another. And there are all kinds of unintended consequences. And so you wind up in a tyrannical situation. That won't happen here because there aren't, those downstream effects will be anticipated. You know enough to know how the world works in certain really basic, uncontroversial ways. 
All right. So the original position frees our moral imagination so we can empathize across social boundaries, right? But we're not just going to shoot the breeze here. This is not to set up sort of that all-night dorm discussion about what's important in life. What follows is going to be rigorous, and, we, uh, and as we go through this, we appreciate that what results is constitutive. It is, it is going to frame everything else, and we don't get to do this again. So we, we understand the, the crucial nature of the enterprise we're about to go into. The goal is, of, within the original position, is to situate people to exercise a type of reason or judgment which is relevant to apprehending the principles of justice for the basic structure of society where people regard themselves as free and equal. All right, so it's really to set that up. So if I take myself out of my situation, what do I know about myself? And here, Rawls starts to make headway in developing a solution in the search for those moral foundations of Western democracy. There is a core to human character, he says, that's critical to arriving at a framework for collective life and to engaging in collective life after the framework is established. So, I don't have, you know, it's not that I am a child of God, or, you know, I don't, he's not going outside to find these things. He's not going into, you know, that I was created by God, or any, any number of extraneous places. He's not even, he's not going to a theory of economics. He's saying, if we're going to talk about justice, right, then what kind of person comes to that discussion? So what do I know about myself behind the veil of ignorance? All of us would be mutually disinterested, not altruistic, but also not, not moved by envy or, or rancor either. We're not motivated by a common concern for justice, but listen carefully. But we have a capacity for justice, and we are reasonable people. So there are these attributes that, are, that really are capacities. Right, I'm disinterested, I'm not greedy, I'm not envious, right? I'm just, I'm here. And I'm not motivated by a conception, uh, by a concern for justice, I'm not passionate about justice, but I know I have a capacity for justice. I mean, some of you may have a capacity for singing, it doesn't mean, right, that you're looking for a chance to sing every time you can. So there's this knowledge of this capacity. All right, but beyond this, in this capacity for justice, I can formulate a conception of the good. Now, what is that? I don't have a conception, but I know I have this capacity. A conception of the good is my, are my aims or purposes, what I think the purpose of life Now, note that I'm behind the veil of ignorance, so I don't know what I think my purpose is. I heard um, 
James Carville and Mary Madeline on TV the other day, and his question was, how do you have a happy marriage? And he said, agree, capitulate, and ultimately, uh, I mean, just, you know, <laughs> abjectly, <laughs> whatever you have to do, and she says, nonsense. It's, um, it's family, faith, and, and, and good wine. Okay, so I mean, I, I, I mean, you have this, you know, different strokes for different, everybody has, but you know you, you can formulate a conception of the good for you. And I can devise a course in life that's consistent with this good and that will allow me to pr- pursue this good. Right, you, if you really believe something is, is important, you can organize, you organize your life to pursue it, so you don't just don't just have the capacity for the idea. You have the the, the way you have, you can get yourself you can get your act together to do the do this thing, whatever it is. Rawls says, in this sense, I know that I am rational. And this is the sense in which I have a reason that is relevant to politics. I mean, I may have also a God-given nature. You know, he's saying that's not really all that relevant to politics. What's relevant to politics is this, that you can formulate these idea, an idea of the, end, of, of the purpose of life. But the rational, he says, my rational, is circumscribed by something else, which is my capacity for the reasonable. That is, I can acknowledge other people's capacity for the rational. So I understand I'm with Mary Madeline, family, faith, and good wine, okay? I understand there may be other people for whom it's completely different. And my dual capacity for the rational, rational and the reasonable together yield for me a sense of justice. So notice... We're talking capacities here. There's no content to any of this yet. No one's told you what justice is. Now, behind the veil of ignorance, I have, what I, right, when I don't know these things about myself, I still have three higher order interests, three motivations around the rational and the reasonable. I want to advance my own conception of the good even though I don't know what it is. And I desire to seek conditions that will enable me to develop these moral powers, including the rational capacity to form or revise, pursue my own conception of the good. I also, I'm motivated by my capacity to be reasonable and to have a sense of justice. Now, note the liberal aspect of this. From the get-go, right, society is an instrumentality of self-actualization. But the self has a social dimension. I actualize through the rational and the reasonable. I actualize through both of those. I won't be happy with my own knowing that I've got family faith and why. I won't be happy. That's not enough. I have to know that whatever it is that you want, you've also got a shot at it too, and that everyone else does. And that's not 
that's not really altruism. It's not doing something. It's just simply this knowledge that I have a capacity for both of these, and I need both. So with these higher order motiva motivations, my next thing I come to is a set of what, I call, what he calls primary social goods. These are the broad means necessary to exercise and develop these moral powers and allow individuals to pursue a wide variety of conceptions of the good. We will need rights and liberties, powers and opportunities, income and wealth, and the social basis for self-respect, which means that even though you may not be into family, faith, and wine, you understand my conception of the good as at least my, worth my pursuing. Now, that leads us to the first principle, which is each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive total system of equal basic liberties compatible with a similar system for all. So it's the equal liberty principle. I have a right to as much liberty as I can have consistent with your having as much liberty as you can have. Now, in arriving at this principle, there are what he calls aspects of justice that frame the thinking in the original position. So we talked about my capacity for the reasonable and the ra rational and the reasonable, that the reasonable ultimately will circumscribe the rational for me as a person in a discussion about justice. If I'm going to talk about justice, this is how it has to go. But let's talk about it, two of these. which he, First, he calls the circumstances of justice. These are the conditions under which cooperation is both possible and necessary. First are physical facts. This is, um, and we talk about that basic, not, you don't know who you are or what your attributes are, but you do have some basic notion about the nature of things. And this is something that the circumstances of justice are some of those, those nature of things, things that you know. One is that human beings are roughly similar in their mental and physical capacities. And we're all, we all have a, a certain vulnerability, physical vulnerability. And that it is in the nature of things that there is moderate scarcity of resources. All of this comes together to make cooperation productive at some visceral level. I don't just need to cooperate because I have this notion of the, the reasonable because of that. I mean, there's a, a real physical reason to cooperate. But here's the other part. Disagreements are inevitable. He calls it the fact of reasonable pluralism. I am naturally concerned about my own aims, more concerned about my aims, the aims of the people I love than I am about other people. And I have limited knowledge, limited judgment. And justice actually addresses these limitations and enters to address my, my, the fact that I am naturally more concerned with my own aims. But it never surmounts it. That is extremely important. When I say, because we talk about the reasonable circumscribing the rational and the fact that in order to be realized as a person, 
I need these, my own notion of what is the good. But I also need to understand, I need to see other people's right, able to, one, formulate their, with the opportunity to formulate their ideas of the good, and with the opportunity to pursue them. And if I, if I look at some, some of the, there are certain earlier people like Rousseau and Hegel who would say that I am real, Plato, I am realized in justice. When in the just order, I, as I'm totally realized right by in the just order. Oh, and he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says that we, that our rational is circumscribed by the reasonable. But we still need our own understanding of the good. Our, our understanding of the good is not, <clears throat> we're not going to find it in the collective. Those that have argued that you find it in the collective, it winds up being rather fascistic. Right? There's a fascistic dimension to that. A friend of mine used to say he never read Hegel without, without hearing the Prussian army marching. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there, there is... There, there is a way in which um, you can you can say that right that that the collective good is is ultimately the only good for me, and he doesn't say that. He says that the reasonable op the, that I'm invested in justice, but justice is the fair opportunity for everyone to have the chance of realizing those personal goals. It's not some kind of collective. There will never be one idea of the good, except he does say that justice is fairness. That He says, to the extent that if you come to the right understanding of justice, which is justice as fairness, justice as fairness is not merely reasonable, it's rational. Right? But, but justice as fairness is never going to be monistic. It's never going to have just one idea of the good. Justice is fairness is a rubric by which people can realize a variety of ideas of the good. All right. The other idea, which I think has to be mentioned as a framing of what people do in, under, in the original position, is what he calls maximin. Uh, it's a rule of choice under conditions of uncertainty. In the original position, we tend to play it as safe as possible in the decisions we come, the rules we come to. And we choose the alternative where the worst outcome, after the veil comes down, my, the worst position I could find myself in leaves me better off than the worst outcome in all the other alternatives. So I don't choose the best, right? I don't. I won't devise a rule where I could become either, I could become the richest, but I could also be the poorest. What I want is a rule that leaves me better off than the worst outcome of all the other extremes. So I, I'm attracted to the idea of a safety net in this. Now, the criticism made of this is that the people in the original position are risk averse. And Rawls says it's rational to be risk averse. By the way, any of you who are interested in rational choice theory, he kind of he, he's using rational choice theory with it. I mean, he, ordinary language, all these various schools that people were struggling with, he can find little nooks where he exploits them as he develops his own theory. But in the original position, it's rational to be risk-averse, given the gravity of the choice and the fact the choice is not repeatable. So should I wind up in the worst place possible, 
the principle of justice provides an adequate share of primary goods, enabling me to maintain my convictions and sincerest affections and pursue a wide variety of permissible ends in guaranteeing a social minimum of income and wealth. So that, we talked about the first principle. Maximin leads me right to the first principle, which each person's to have an equal right to the most extensive total system of equal basic liberties compatible with a similar system for all. And with that right would go the, con the, the conditions to realize that, the material conditions. All right, now I want to talk a little bit about the difference principle, and then we'll have a, I'll open it up for discussion. There are two ideas that come out of the original position, right? Two principles. One is the equal liberty principle, and the other is the difference. The difference principle addresses differences or inequalities in distribution of primary goods, of income, and wealth. So it's not merely the, it's not the primary good of liberty, but it's the primary good of income and wealth, which is essential to the realization of liberty. And powers and prerogatives of office and positions of responsibility. It basically requires a society it institute an economic system that makes the least advantaged class better off than they would be in any other feasible economic system compatible with maintaining citizens with equal basic liberty and fair equality of opportunity. All right, so if you think about it, what it really does, it accepts that there are certain situations where if you could compare two regimes, one has the possibility of making the pie bigger, the other one doesn't. To the extent that making the pie bigger makes people, the least advantaged group, better off, then that, that meets the criteria of the difference principle. But it, if it make, the pie gets bigger, but at the cost of the least advantaged, among other people perhaps, but at the cost of the least advantaged, that one will not be accepted right in the original position. You can only make it unequal if there is an advantage to the least, to the least advantaged in the system. Now, he claims it's basically an empirical question as to which will be better, and that is that, is, that discussion is had behind the original position. Now, he said, which system? Probably a property-owning democracy. It would not be laissez-faire capitalism, and it wouldn't be a command economy communist. What he, but he finally says that Maximin won't justify the difference principle. Interestingly, I mean, if you think about it, that's a prudential, Maximin is prudential. That is, you, you, you don't know where you're going to come out in this, and so you're going to choose the regime that where the worst position is better than any other regime. I used to have a professor who said he wanted to die and come back a dog in his house, okay? Not just anywhere, in his house, okay? I mean, Maximin says, I'll be better off in, in that system if I come out, the worst possible position I could be in, I'll be better off than I would be in any of the others. But he says that ultimately, that's a prudential concern, and it really doesn't rise to the level of a justification, the type of justification we need here. Remember, this, 
his whole motive, his whole project has been to provide the justification for liberal democracy. And a prudential standard doesn't really work. So why do we need the difference principle? And he says, ultimately, it's part of our sense of the reasonable. We want reciprocity among free and equal citizens. And in order to get that, then you can't better, unlike the utilitarians, you can't come up with the greatest happiness of the greatest number if there's a group over here that's losing out by virtue of bettering, making everybody else better off. That's not how you treat equal citizens. So Maximin doesn't really, really take us as far. It's governing as to how people think in the original position, but it doesn't take us so far. All right, with that, I hope it begins to seem, well, I assume it's exciting to you, or you wouldn't be here tonight when you realize what he's really trying to do, the fact that he comes back to the old-time religion really should, shouldn't seem trite, because what he has done is find a new justification, a contemporary justification for a liberal democracy, which was tremendously lacking. Or that's what he said himself, that's what his goal was. So, who has comments? Um, this is very helpful, but this brings me back to a comment I made last week, which is uh, I think the trouble that I have with Rawls, and you explain well what he's trying to do, you know, what his, I think, what his project is, as you put it, um, but trying to address this in real life. I think the problem, the reason why when I first read Rawls I didn't get all of this is I was looking for a descriptive theory, I was looking for a predictive theory of things that happen in real life, like how capitalism works in America, because that's where I grew up, or um, you know, like how Darwin's theory might fit in with all of this, things that I, that I was rooted in, in terms of my education and culture and background. And I, I'm still, I think the disfluency that I'm having is I see him, and this is the way I said it last week, as being in his own little utopia here, um, especially with respect to the original position, you know, because he's theorizing sort of a more normative world and a justification for a system as opposed to, and maybe little pieces of the way it works, but as opposed to expressing a construct that works in every aspect of our society. So I don't know if you want to address that or if someone else wants to address that. I don't think that's what he wants. That's not his goal. I mean, you're, you're, um, you're talking, I think, apples and oranges. I mean, that's not his goal. You know, I don't know if you heard the part about the Nuremberg trial, but when you got to Nuremberg, you had all these atrocities, and you, ha you didn't really have a way to say to these people, I'm sorry, following the laws of Germany is not an answer. Okay, and here's why. Because the, more, the theory that had underpinned the sense of justice was gone. So he set himself out the goal of reconstituting it. And he really needed, we really needed, to find a theory. And what he says is, you know, this is, this is a discussion about justice. This is how you have to come to, if, you're, if you don't do it this way, you're not talking about justice. I mean, it may be a valuable conversation. You know, maybe it's, you're we're exchanging recipes for apple pie. You know, it's okay. It's just not justice. It may be mathematics. It may be economics. It's not justice. All right. And, and I think it is an approach to problems, but it's not. Um, I mean, 
he says himself there are a number of systems that I think would work under this. I mean, they would all be pretty close to the same model, you know, but he's willing for people to come at it in different ways. Sorry. Is there a, a circularity to his logic? Yes, intentionally. Well, that, that really tripped me up because it seems like it all boils down to saying the maximum principle leads you to the conclusion that the two principles have to be the right answer. But when he, in doing that, and this is hard to spit this out, but in doing that, he defined, he's looking at the minimal acceptable level of the worst outcome. But he says that is the two principles of justice. Is that enough for you to understand my <laughs> No, I think what you're I think what you're saying I mean, you know, Maximin is it's interesting how it integrates in with with the first principle of justice, right? Because the first principle really is about the rational and the reasonable. I mean the first principle is about my being my being able to formulate goals of, you know, purposes of my own life and to think life has a purpose and somebody else is to be able to go through that, you know, similar process and me understanding, first off, that I can do it and if I figure out, you know, if I have, if I believe something's important, I can figure a way to integrate that into my life and my understanding, well, gosh, other people also have this and my understanding that it's not just a value for me but it's a value for me that they have, that other people have this. So that is what really takes me to the first principle, right? But the, there's a component to the first principle that says that everybody has as much as everybody else, right? The, the, there, there is a, an element of minimizing my risk in the first principle as well. Liberty is, is the priority in this, right? It's, an equal, it's the equal liberty principle. So equality is relevant as a metric of liberty, and in that it's a liberal it's a liberal theory. You know, the first thing we care about is our ends and purposes of life. I mean, that's the thing we know first behind the origin, in the original position. That way, it's liberal. So it's that it's that rational and reasonable that gets me there first. The way it's constructed, it's got an element of mini max in it, maximum in it. Is that helpful? But it is circular. I mean, that's it's a constructivist. It's a constructivist argument. I mean, I mean, most science is constructivist. I mean, I suppose there's some empirical. Is anybody an empirical scientist in there? Am I going to have to argue with you? <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, if I think of physics, all right, I know there's probably an empirical side of physics. I mean, one of those interesting aspects of physics to me is that you can use numbers. You use mathematics as an instrumentality to unlock physics. So it's mathematics is logic in, that we invented it. I mean, the, the whole concept of one and you know one thing and all, that's in our brains. So you know, and and the reason why it works is because it it has an internal coherence and it has some degree of correspondence with things external to it. But it's the fact that the the systems you know all the parts kind of speak to each other. That's constructivism. And this is, is a constructivist enterprise. It's justified because it's about justice. He says, this is about justice. If this is going to make any sense, what has to go into this? You know, there, there's economic information that becomes relevant. 
you know, how businesses work become relevant, but they, you know, they fit in there. People are subject to disease. I mean, you know, whatever, you know, they're, they're, it, it can become relevant to the discussion, but it doesn't drive it, it doesn't drive the, the central discussion, which is really about justice. How do you uh, get a population to accept the, the fairness and the, the principles of fairness, um, for instance, that everyone in the society should uh, have an equal opportunity for liberty and for the pursuit of their own good? How, how would one go about getting a, a whole population to, to, to accept that? It seems, for instance, that Canada may have that, but we don't. Um, I don't know that I don't know of any implementation strategy uh, that he offers. I suppose that to the extent that academic philosophers and other smart people who are interested in justice feel strengthened or encouraged by the fact there's now an argument, a coherent account of justice, it. Uh, should uh, strengthen you as you argue the fine points. But, I mean, it, it isn't, you know, how, how people learn about justice, how people internalize values, just, you know, the values of justice. I mean, it starts in childhood. You know, how, how do you teach children justice? You know, that's a question of, of sort of, that's not his question. To be realized, it seems that one would have to have a society that starts from from those basic principles that you mentioned. For instance, have uh, disinterested, uh, not altruistic necessarily, a, a situation where everyone can pursue the good. It seems like you'd have to start with a, at least a majority of the population believing that. Well. I don't know how to answer you because, I mean, not from, not in any way that I feel is true to him. I don't know what, I don't know what to say. Um, Professor Stevens, you, you want to, I mean, you have any, you want to, do you, I mean, do you know anywhere in the text where he deals with the, the implementation of his? He's not very prescriptive, as you have, <laughs> have indicated. He, um, but he, he, he does assume, of course, a great deal of uh, what he calls overlapping consensus. He assumes that there is going to be wide agreement on the, the basic structure of democratic society. Uh, he, he also recognizes pluralism, that is, uh, that there will be many points of view and the importance of everyone's point of view being capable of recognition in this society that he envisages. So in that sense, I think he perhaps does, uh, wittingly or not, give us a little bit of a practical dimension. One of the things that interests me about Rawls is looking at some of the things that he, that he says and trying to think how a policymaker would apply uh, these principles in dealing with specific problems. You're right, Ross does not give the answers, but he certainly, he discusses the procedure by which to arrive at decisions. 
And that's why I think we find judges occasionally, appellate judges, citing wrongs in their opinions as they're trying to grapple with what you would come up with if you apply the procedure that he describes in this uh, lengthy book, Theory of Justice, and in the shorter book, Justice is Fairness. Yeah, I, that's, that's probably a, a, sanguine, a, a sanguine view, as you could, could extract. I mean, and I do think, you know, to the extent he, he talks about uh, the basic instincts of justice, I mean, I think he, he does think that they are with us wherever we are, right? And although they're not sort of organized as well as they would be in the original position and not able to come to fruition quite like they would be, they are there and are ripe for engagement. I probably know less about Rawls than anyone else in the room, and so I'm going to ask a question that perhaps some of you can answer. But as I have listened to the discussion, it has seemed to me, first, he recognizes that individuals are entities, but he also seems to recognize that society, societies are entities. And is, is it the case that, that he's talking really at some of the time about an ultimate goal of society itself and that that goal is perhaps stability and for a society to be stable, it has to be well-ordered. And that it seems to me the justice and fairness concepts are, are what he sees as the crucial building blocks of, of it being well-ordered. Does he make this clear, or does he really talk about no, this? That's a, yes, he does. I mean, he does talk about stability. Uh, and in fact, he claims that for a rightly-ordered society is a stable society, which doesn't mean that it, it won't change but it's dynamic, it can morph, right, in, in ways that are consistent as scientific changes or whatever come on into play. The society can certainly evolve consistent with those principles. So, and there's a way in which the stability is validating of the principles. The stability is definitely validating of the principles. You know, it suggests that everybody thinks there's very quality of opportunity and all the other good things built into it. So does that answer you? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that society is an entity for him. I mean, society is an entity for Rousseau. In other words, it has a, and certainly for Hegel, it has an organic quality. I don't think he would want to say society is organic. He would certainly think that there is Society is society is something, but it's not an entity. I would just it ha, that that word has an organic quality, and I think he, because of the ne, the necessarily pluralism and the diversity of uh, values and whatever in play in society, it doesn't it doesn't have that. Um, well, it's just far more dynamic than than the word entity. I think suggests okay. You've touched on this a little, but Rawls, he, he shares a lot with 18th century social contract liberals, uh, men like Rousseau and Jefferson. But what did he see in their foundation for liberal constitutional democracy that he found flawed? Why did he think a new system was necessary? Um, sure. Um, well... I mean, you go through them, 
as you go through, you know, somebody like Hobbes, you know, the only the first law of nature is to seek peace, and if if that isn't going to work, then prepare for war. And considering that you know human beings are totally appetitive creatures for him, you know, prepare for war is the operative thing. So you really don't come to the state, and it, they are preoccupied with the state, and he's not preoccupied. He's he's preoccupied with justice, not with the state. Okay, as a I mean, he's with the principle of not how do I, what's the what's the the normative basis of the state? Well, it's created by contract. You know, all right, that would be, and of course, anybody here ever enter into a contract? You know, I mean it. Does it didn't happen? I mean, and so anyway, you get to Locke, and Locke does then sort of backtracks and, and recognizes innate ideas. He had rejected them in his moral philosophy, but he comes back, and he does then in order to um, he has innate ideas, and there is the law of nature, and uh, there is the institution of property, but you there is still a certain degree of unrest in nature because everybody. Who knows the law of nature is interpreting it, interpreting it for his or her own purposes. So we still get a certain amount of unrest. So we need the state, but the state is more circumscribed than Hobbes' state. <sighs> then where are we? All right. Then you get Rousseau, <laughs> and with, in the case of Rousseau, if you go there are two social contracts in Rousseau, but if you go to the if you go to the the one of the, the contract social, if you go to that one. He has that, the individual is really quite realized in that state. The individual is realized in the collectivity. And there is no sort of coming to fruition as a person outside of the rightly ordered state. And that would make, I mean, there is a monistic quality to that community. And, a, and a, for instance, a, a hostility to what is called faction, which are interest groups. And, and none of that would make Rawls very happy. So I think. I mean, I think it's their preoccupation with the state, but it's also the fact that in the later versions, you still have, you wind up with this rather. Uh, it, it, they, it is about self-realization, but it's realized too much within the collectivity for him. Is there somebody else you want me to talk about? Okay. I find your analysis very helpful once I accept Professor Skinner's statement that he, Rawls assumes widespread consensus. So when you have one person behind the veil, maybe you can have widespread consensus. Once you have two people, you have a chance of having no consensus. And, and there are any number of societies where you had a widespread consensus with the, the, the Jim Crow South or Hitler's Germany. You, you had arguably widespread consensus about a social system that we now perceive as uh, unjust or unfair. So I think where I'm falling down here is that you have to assume widespread consensus before you can... Uh, buy into the rest of the uh, theory. And once you do that, it, it all makes a lot of sense to me. But if you don't accept that, I don't know whether whether he satisfies. 
Um, well, I mean, in Nazi Germany or Jim Crow South, I mean, you're not. A, are you assuming that the the, the Jim Crow South, the former slaves, were behind the veil of ignorance with everybody else? And in Nazi Germany, are you assuming that Jewish people and other uh, homosexuals and other people that were persecuted are also behind the veil of ignorance? Because you put everybody behind the veil of ignorance. In fact, I put the Nazis behind the veil of ignorance and say to them, you know, well, you don't know if you're going to wind up a Jew or a Nazi. What do you want? You have consensus when you have all those people uh, behind the veil. And some are saying, hey, you can't do this. And others are saying, this is really for the best of everybody that, frankly, you shouldn't be here anymore. We should obliterate you. Right. Well, that is, yes, yes. All right. There are several things, ways in which we can, I think you cannot answer that problem. I mean, behind the veil of ignorance, you're not going to know who you are. And the questions are pretty basic behind the veil of ignorance. As I say, he's not a policy wonk. So behind the veil of ignorance... I'm going to answer some very basic questions, and I'm not going to know very. I'm not going to know any really any of the particulars of my my personality, my talents, my predilections, or my circumstances. So that I think takes takes care of it there. Now, after the veil of ignorance, he does say, you know, there is the the, the element of pluralism that is always there. Also, one of the arguments that's sort of embedded in what you're saying is that. That you can trade off the interest of the majority against the minority. By structuring the veil of ignorance in a certain way, you're, that's utilitarianism, and you're not going to make that decision. Maximin also addresses that, which says if you know that you could wind up either a Jew or a Nazi, you won't choose a situation where being the minority is going to give you a stick with, that's that short. You know, I was going to say get the short end of the stick, but you're not going to put yourself in a position of that degree of vulnerability. Maximin will keep you from doing that. That's what he argues. Yes. Do, do I have it right when I say that, and he says someplace in here that um, if you accept the veil, you are led inexorably to the two basic principles. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say that eliminates all excuses that you could possibly make for being surprised, dumbfounded, screwed. Is that right? You really think? So you're thinking that you could you could say, okay, I'll go behind the veil of ignorance, and I'll forget who I was, and I'll agree to this, and then you find that, oh my gosh, I'm not as well off as I thought I would be. Is that what you're saying? Well, no. I would come up with some society-wide principle that would really be hurtful. He, he never does let go of utility. At least, I've only read three parts of it. He, even to the last part of part three, he starts, keeps talking about a limited utility, doesn't he? Limited, yeah. And what do you mean by utility? What are you thinking that? He... I mean by utility, what utilitarianism? Just what you said. You mean the great? Yeah, utility, the maximizing the good, uh, most for the most people. But he, he, he never lets go of that. Well, first he is really, you know, his his peeve, or his the thing he really uh, is after, the thing he really wants to push aside is utilitarianism, much more than communism. He's much more 
interested in pushing aside utilitarian, I mean, arguing, providing a, an alternative to utilitarianism. When he talks about, though, a limited utility, he's really talking about a way in which in, an individual makes a personal calculus in this situation, but it's a very structured situation. So that's part of the inexorability, is that you, as you are calculating, you're drawn to, you are acting out of marginal utility, but it's in a highly structured situation. So you're not, you're not out there in the wild blue yonder the way most utilitarians would put you. You're acting like a utilitarian constrained behind a veil of ignorance. You're going to be a maximum utilitarian. Okay? I think that's the answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm certainly intrigued by uh, Rawls, and I'm going to you know, find out what there is that is valuable to us and to our society. I think my biggest difficulty so far is that it seems to me that, that Rawls lays out a set of ideas in the first part, and he refers many times in the first part to where these various segments of the first part are, are taken from a, a theory of justice, which he had written 40 no, 30 years before he wrote before he wrote this and got some editing help from a, a colleague of his. And then he uh, gets to the second part and he said, well, I still don't like this. I still don't fully un understand whether I've explained this adequately, so I'll try again. And then he, then he gets to the third part, which is... He's already dealt, dealt with in the first part uh, at some length. And he says, well, the original position is this. And he restates, seems to think he's restating what he said in the first part. And I think in large measure it's true that he's still wrestling with, not only with the ideas he's trying to get across, but he's wrestling with getting them across. And I still don't feel I've got what I want to get out of Rawls. There's a great joke about um, Rawls, and I, it's um, the the joke is, you know, it, it it wouldn't be so difficult if the person who translated it out of the German had done a better job. Okay, <laughs> I, I mean it. it there and I, I find Rawls very, very difficult. I mean, I've used I used him in a paper I wrote a couple years ago. He's very difficult to characterize because you miss as soon as you characterize him, you twist him. He says exactly what he needs. And when he at any moment I mean he says exactly what he needs. And when you take it and, you know, you could you think, well, okay, I'll quote three pages of it. And you go, well, that, you know, is not much of a paper. And uh, at least not one by me. So I've got to find some way to, um, you know, to kind of characterize or to, without quoting him, you know, at least um, say in my own words what he has said. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, he says exactly what he means. Now... I will also say, though, he just died a few years ago, two or three years ago. He was a very humble man. 
he, I mean, and he was somebody that was recognized. He was an undergraduate at Princeton. I mean, you know, he's, he's not a role model for anybody because he just, you know, his life, he, people spotted him and doors flew open and, you know, whatever. But he was, he's such a, a humble man. And as, as people sought to engage him and came back at him, he took them all very, very, very seriously. And, and you see the evolution of his work, and his work, he, he tweaks it. It gets finer. It really, it really, really gets finer as he progresses and uh, as people provoke him to answer certain things or clarify why, why, why can't it be so? Why won't there be dissent or argument you know, behind the veil of ignorance? Is it a bargaining position? His answer to that was no. You know, we aren't going to horse trade back there. So, you know, he's, people, you know, kept saying, and he sort of extracted what was implicit in what he had said all along. I mean, I find it pretty consistent. He did write one paper at the very beginning of his, uh, of his career called Two Concepts of Rules, which legal philosophers absolutely love. And he is rumored, I have heard that he once said to someone, because it is not consistent with what he did in the rest of his work. It's a beautiful article, and it's a really fine piece of work. But um, he supposedly said to somebody, he wish he'd never written it, because people are always coming at him on two concepts of rules. And, and anyway, but everything else, I think, is, is really of a piece. Yeah, I'd like to, um, in light of the fact that we were just talking about rules, talk a little bit about um, the way that law seems in some way to compete, at least certain laws seem to compete with the Rawls notion of justice as fairness. And so maybe we say the law is unjust, or maybe we say the law helps create injustice. So I'm just going to offer an example from my own background and see how you react. Uh, corporation is required under all state laws in the United States to be governed by its board of directors. Board of directors act as fiduciaries. They're required to, as agents of the corporation, uh, observe fiduciary duties on, for the benefit of the corporation, the corporation's key constituency being shareholders. That may mean, for example, that if a corporation is making an environmental decision, rather than using Maximin, rather than starting from the original position, that corporation may instead be choosing a position that is vastly different because the law directs it to do that. Um, and since corporations are members of society, just as individuals are, if everybody's behaving that way, we could never achieve, at least my view, we could never achieve a Rawlsian liberal democracy. What would direct them in making the environmental decision, assuming all options, all alternatives are legal, would be their responsibility to the corporation with the primary constituency being the shareholders? He has no answer to that. I will tell you that. I mean, and I think he would avoid it like the plague. All right. I mean, because they're really, I mean, it's a profound, it's a conundrum. One of the criticisms that was made of him in the 60s when Theory of Justice first came out and you had all the... Um, you had the anti-war movement, and you had the civil rights movement, and you had all of these groups that were extremely critical of liberal democracy. And they were saying, but liberal democracy is bankrupt, and, and he kept you know, going back to arguing for liberty and going back and arguing. I, I mean, and, and there was this 
says, you know, where is social change in all of this? Where is social change? And he was, you know, he's my project is to provide the justification for liberal democracy. That, I mean, there's a huge amount of people did this. There would be enormous social change. I mean, it would be enormous social change. But you know, it's he's not leading with that card. And in your situation, um, you've got, you know, you've got the, the the obligation to the shareholders and the greater good to society. And I mean, we all know that overall, in general, obligation to shareholders is an important thing. And ultra veras is kind of scary. One of the most interesting things, it seems to me, is his division of law into what he calls local justice and <laughs> domestic justice and the law of peoples. Yes. Which he, by which he means international, um, the, the developing situation. I think he's trying to say there's a developing situation for for a larger law that would apply to the whole world. But when he's talking about what he calls local justice, he's talking about the law the law that operates within corporations and within churches and within other organizations. And what we learn about domestic law is supposed to be applicable outside to the law of people someday and inside to the law, the local justice on the, in the other case. Yeah, I'm, you know, his stuff on the law of peoples is, I think, generally viewed as, is done at the end of his life, uh, is, well, less, I was going to say less successful, it's certainly less influential than theory of justice and all the things that came out of that. There, I think one of these, maybe it's the fourth or fifth one, is going to be about the law of peoples, and that will be very interesting. I mean, I don't, I know less about the law of peoples than I know about the rest of his work. You know, of course, the law of peoples, international law, as most sort of hard-boiled law lawyers will tell you, is not law at all. But it's moral principles. I mean, it, you know, it, it's law because there's no it's very hard to attach a sanction to it. So it has the normative dimension of law, thou shalt not. And at this, but it doesn't tell you, and if you do, what kind of fate will befall you. So it, it has that very precarious status as law. He also, one of the other areas. Uh, which is things that is in theory of justice, which is interesting. He talks about justice between generations. And he, he uh, I understand he once commented that he found working out justice between generations one of the hardest things to do, which would go to environmental concerns, right? You know, can we, you know, use up all the oil or use up or, or now, you know, destroy the earth and inflict it on next generations and what about the deficit and you know I, I mean all of that which has to do with really savings you know how do you you know what metric do you find to distribute goods between the born and the unborn it seems to me that he was not only humble but he was amazingly courageous to tackle such question well he had to know he was smart as humble as he was, I think the man knew he was smart. He was very smart. 
How would a Balzian constitution differ from the current U.S. Constitution, in your thinking? I don't know about the Constitution, but I think there are aspects of our laws. I mean, we have basically welfare capitalism, and he was definitely not a big, I mean, he saw, I think, welfare capitalism as a kind of, as a sort of second best, at least. Because uh, what, so, what we have is we, you know, we have these go, go, go kind of capitalists who just go, go make as much money as you possibly can, and then we redistribute to people who are destitute. And that's not uh, as consistent with the difference principle as he would like. Uh, he would be interested more in a property-owning democracy where everybody has some, some degree of property, some small amount of property, and not necessarily not gotten by redistribution so much as equality of opportunity. Um, and you know, an, an economic system which was probably much more regulated, so that that you wouldn't have the extraordinary wealth. You would have some. You would have differences. You have some pretty pretty rich people, but you wouldn't have the you know kind of jaw dropping kind of wealth that we generate in this country with the kind of capitalism. And then we kind of assuage our sense of justice by redistributing a little bit to a few people who are whose circumstances the, the system doesn't really address. Just a quick follow-up on this. Maybe I'm just missing something in, in what you just said. And I ain't no constitutionalist, I'll tell you. So, <laughs> um, Not my or area of law. But, um, but it, one of the things that was said, I think, by Professor Cook two weeks ago was that um, the Bill of Rights was very consistent with uh, the, second, the first part of the second principle of no, the the, fir the first principle, right? Right. Um, and so the Bill of Rights, it looks like, is yeah. you know, is something that yeah. we yeah. could say is consistent. Absolutely. But then when we look at sort of the 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 two aspects of um, equality as opposed to sort of liberty in the second principle, I'm not sure. And I think you were addressing principally the second one in, yes. in what you yes. were talking about in terms and of that's distribution. A, that's an important thing to add. Yes. Okay. So. Um, and, but then there are also equal opportunity. I mean, they're certainly, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, there are equal opportunity pieces. So the first piece of the second principle on um, equality maybe also is, if not constitutionally based, maybe at least rooted, case law, you know, jurisprudence on the Constitution might root it in that. But I do think you're right. The, the real problem is in, you know, whether there's anything constitutional that that forces us to look at the um, original position that forces us, that forces the government to act from an original position. Maybe that's what I'm sort of striving for. Um, there's nothing in there that says the government should idealistically act in accordance with Maximin. Um, uh, or maybe I'm just missing something. Is that, is that what, you were, what you were trying to say or am I misunderstanding? No, I think you're saying, I think, I think that's it, although I wouldn't try to put the government in this position, the original position. I mean, I... I just, you know, what are you thinking the Congress should, I mean, the Congress should not represent their districts, but they, I mean, I, I can't get there. I can't get to the, what you mean by the government acting in the original position. Yeah. But I guess isn't that pro the problem, right, is that the Constitution in creating the balance of powers and giving great force to the legislature in creating our legal system has created a political system that's inconsistent 
with his view of liberal democracy. Okay, ultimately. yeah, and in that sense, it's an 18th century document because it, it, it you remember Federalist 10, where there were, where the, everybody was totally, con, was con, consumed with a concern with, with factions. Factions are really, really bad thing. Factions would undermine democracy, which goes, I mean, was in Rousseau and it's in a lot of, a lot of those pe a lot of those people's writings and the solution in Federalist 10 is just, you know, Madison says, hey, if you have enough of them, you know, they won't, nobody's going to, going to take over, right? Nobody is going to, it's what came to be called in political science later on as cross-cutting cleavages, which is as long as, you know, unlike, like in, if you get a situation like Northern Ireland used to be where all the poor people were also Catholics, were also, you know, whatever, and all the, all the better off people were all Protestants and they, right, and they, they had different areas in which people lived and whatever. At that point, you've got a, you know, you've got a very, a tinderbox box of a situation. But if you, you know, if I'm a rich Catholic and you're a poor Protestant and, you know, we have, I love the opera, but you, you know, you love, you know, bowling. I mean, as long as, you know, we're just not all lined up together, it works. And so the Constitution was, was probably as much as anything else constructed to foster the fracturing of the population into factions so that you have lots and lots of factions. You have 50 states. I mean, that's federalism is also a stimulus to factions. You know, it's not meant to come to this contemplative place. We really wouldn't know what a constitution built on Rawlsian principles would look like, would we? Probably. It would inform the people who built the constitution, but it would, in, in, in much the same way, I, I think one of my professors once said, when Thomas Jefferson was accused of plagiarizing uh, um, Locke. Locke, he said, yeah. well, it was all right as far as it went. And, and what he meant was, Locke was a thinker. And uh, we had to do something that people were going to use. It's not his project to frame a constitution. It's to give a way of thinking about about the Constitution and you know and it it's prior to factions it's prior to all of that it's how to think it, it really is how you know to the extent you 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 don't see it as a love letter to the to the discipline of moral philosophy um, it is a way of, of thinking about justice and social issues I mean, if you could, you know, if, if you didn't know your race, what would the laws be? You know, if you didn't know whether you were straight or gay, what would you want in terms of laws having to do with gay marriage, civil unions, or what, if you didn't know? I mean, it asks you to think about social issues in that way. Let me rephrase then. Uh, okay, so Rawls, we don't know what a Rawlsian constitution would look like, but maybe we could ask, can we identify certain provisions or structural uh, setups that would be incompatible with Rawls? And, and I'm not thinking so much here about a Bill of Rights or the declarations of the rights of man and of the citizen, but like the structure of government. So you say that Rawls is before factions. Does that mean that Rawls would like to avoid the emergence of factions? Is that, does he see that? Well, I think he thinks a certain, a certain degree, amount of factioning is, is inevitable because that's the, the conditions of reasonable pluralism. But I suppose 
I mean, if you take the crudest characterization of the last years of the Bush administration, all right, where you basically had all the rich people who had, through Cheney and the corporate interest, who've sort of taken over, all right, and I said the crudest characterization, that is, that's actually, that would be pretty hostile to what Rawls would, would be interested in seeing. I guess to go back to the question of, you know, Rawls and the, and, and the legal structure of the Constitution and Otis uh, Stevens' point about this, um, you know, to a certain extent, the Supreme Court, in some ways, may act as a Rawlsian institution. Uh, you know, they are sort of behind the veil of ignorance. They are meant to, you know, speak uh, in some kind of faceless way to the needs of society. Of course, we find out the court's rather political, you know. Uh, the most recent, I mean, uh, you know, the corporations being able to contribute to campaigns, you have to wonder, well, I don't know if they were acting out of, uh, it's a mystery as to me as to how they got there. Uh, and, and you look at, there's certainly, certainly an effort to make the court diverse. I mean, if we think of Sotomayor, or various other candidates who's you know who are part of the contribution we anticipate is comes from the fact of their p particular background, you know that's actually not you know Rawls would say you know, and and there are, there are feminists who criticize Rawls for this that you know a, a panel of of white men should be able to step behind the veil of ignorance and think like women or think like. Uh, you know, Latin Americans or think about, like, you know, African Americans or think about whatever, you know, you get behind the veil of ignorance and you don't bring anything to it, so you ought to, I mean, there have been, you know, some, some criticisms, I know, by women's groups and that, and I'm sure the others had too, but, I mean, we actually sort of got to a place where we don't sort of think anybody's behind the veil of ignorance and we think people come to it with, and think, you know, feel actually kind of good about people um, coming with different perspectives and and think it enriches everything, and that these are inescapable, but they're they're to be treasured. The fact of reasonable diver, you know, reasonable difference is actually to be treasured, not just a condition uh, that a background condition of justice. Any other comments, questions? Well, I hope I hope I haven't confused you. <laughs> I hope you come away with some greater degree of lucidity. Well, I think we've had a great discussion tonight, and thank you so very much for being oh, here tonight. Thank you. My pleasure. That was an episode of a community study of Justice as Fairness by John Rawls in a five-part series sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the Baker Center for Public Policy. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2010, by Knox County Public Library. To find the other recordings in this series, plus more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.